All right, you go ahead and take your seat and you can uh, grab your Bibles and turn uh, now to Acts chapter 10. Thank you, Sean. I'll get that. Acts chapter uh, 10, we're going to uh, finish up um, our study in Acts uh, for now, obviously, because there's a lot more to come in the book of Acts, uh, but we're going to set it aside just for now. And as, uh, as Megan said off the top of the service, we're going to get into a four-week series, Is Christmas Unbelievable? Looking forward to that. In the new year, going to do a kind of a church DNA series uh, called We Are Harvest. And then once that is done, I think I kind of completely lost my mind or, or caved into all the pressure. And uh, we will be doing a series, starting a series in the book of Revelation um, at the end of the... You see, people are so excited. Yes! Yes! And I don't quite feel the same way about it, just so you know, at this point. Uh, but in, in, the first, in the latter part of this ministry year, we'll get through the first five chapters, which actually are honestly pretty easy. It's really chapters 6 through 19 that are the tough ones. And, and we're going to get to that in the next ministry year. It's like in the fall or sometime we'll get into that. And, um, and uh, unless the Lord comes back first, which I will be praying earnestly for uh, between chapter 5 and chapter 6. So uh, looking forward to that. But anyways, Acts chapter 10 uh, here this morning. We're going to be starting at verse 34, going to the end of the chapter. But let me start with this question. It seems like a silly question because I, I, I pretty much know the answer. But do you want a happy well-adjusted life free of stress and worry? Yes, everybody wants that. A, a happy, well-adjusted life free of stress and worry. That makes sense. So I have some, I have some counsel for you. If you want that, you could, you could just write this down because this is going to be gold. You ready for this? You ready? Okay, stop reading, watching, and listening to the news. Does that make sense? Just if you want to have a happy, well-adjusted life free of stress and worry, stop watching the news because I have news for you. It's all bad. No, no, I know that they do the human interest stories and I know they try to find that little nugget of good news inside all the bad news. But listen, the economy, bad news. The pandemic, bad news, still bad news. The environment, bad news. The weather, it's Canada, it's November, it's bad news. And I got news for you, it's gonna get worse because it's only November. And listen, I'm not a pessimist. I do know that there are some good news stories out there that are uplifting, but on the whole, we would all agree that the news is despair-inducing for all of us. And so let's get right to it. In the text today, the only one who's delivering truly good news today is God. And it's news that the world needs to hear. It's, 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 it's news that the world needs to accept. And in today's passage, Peter shares the message of Jesus, what he calls in the passage, this is verse 36, good news of peace. So, so well-being, well-adjusted life, happy, free of stress and worry, good news of peace through Jesus Christ. And he delivers this message to a group of very eager listeners who are gathered in the home of an unlikely seeker, Cornelius, who's a, a Roman army officer. And it's a God-orchestrated event. If you were here to, he, to, to hear last week's message and, and you know the first part of chapter 10, this was a God-ordained meeting. 
but no more or less so than this meeting right here. That God has ordained this moment for you to be in the room. God has ordained this moment. If you're watching on the live stream or you're watching it on demand through the week, God has ordained this moment for us collectively as a church, but listen also for every individual, God has a move he wants to make in each one of our lives if we're in the hearing of this message. By the end of the encounter in Acts 10, everyone who heard this good news of peace through Jesus Christ, every one of them gave their lives to follow Jesus. Every one of them came to grips with the gospel realities that Peter was preaching to them. And again, I hope that many here, many watching online, would also come to grips with these gospel realities. And if they do not yet know Jesus Christ, they would. By the end of this message and the end of our time together today. So let me read uh, the passage. This is Acts 10, 34 to the end of the chapter. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are all witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. All right, on the screen in your notes, here's what we're going after. If you don't yet know Jesus, you need to know the seven gospel realities. Let's uh, get started. There's seven of them after all. Uh, first of all, the gospel is barrier free. And we had a whole message about this last week. That was really the gist of what we were looking at in the first part of chapter 10. But the first thing Peter says to this group of Yahweh believing Gentiles, so these were not pagan Gentiles. These were a group of Gentiles who had embraced Judaism, at least in some form, and were worshiping Yahweh. What he says to them is, I now see, verse 34, that God shows no partiality. If you have the NIV, God shows no favoritism. 
Now, this word partiality or, or favoritism is a Hebrew expression, an idiom, means lifting the face. In Hebrew, it's, it's lifting the face. And it pictures a king with a petitioner coming before the throne and the king going to the petitioner and, and gently lifting their face up to look at the monarch. It's the favor of God showing partiality toward the one. And what the idiom really means for us is this, God shows no favoritism in that he shows his favor to any who would come to him. He'll lift the face of anyone, which in the context of chapter 10 was entirely about the gospel being available to, to the Jews. So he showed his favor. He lifted the face of the Jews. He showed his favor. We saw back in chapter eight with the Samaritans, he lifted the face of the Samaritans. And now he's lifting the face of the Gentiles. He's showing his favor to the Gentiles. And as I said last week, this constitutes a seismic shift for the church, a turning point in history and in the mission that had been entrusted to the believers. Because it is now becoming clear that it wasn't just words that the gospel should go to all nations, but it was actually playing out. Verse 35, it's clear that God saves people, notice, in every nation. And in fact, what matters is not where you're from, what nation you're a part of, but it is, it is for anyone who, notice in the text two things, anyone who first fears him, and secondly, does what is right. It's the one who fears him and does what is right. That's the person who's accept acceptable to him. Now, in some respects, Peter knows who he's talking to. So he's come into this home, Cornelius, the Roman army officer. And this is a reference to Cornelius' piety with respect to God. Peter's recognizing that in Cornelius, but it also serves as a really great definition of what salvation is really all about. Let's go back to it. To fear him is to have that sense of reverential awe, to have worship. It is, have to, it is to have a genuine faith that sees me for who I am and God for who he is and to approach him in the right way. When we talk about how to make disciples here, we talk about the four W's and the first of those is worship. You can't do the other three unless you first of all worship Christ and that starts with our salvation. So this is a reference to his faith, his worship of God, his relationship with him. And then secondly, does what is right. That's showing the fruit of your faith. It's having the works that back up your faith. But now it's very important right now to kind of pause and make sure we understand something that is very controversial in the church and is, is something we gravitate toward that doesn't actually help our salvation. It's something that was a matter of great discussion back in the first century when the church was just getting started. Because we are not saved by our works, but our works show that we are saved. We are not saved by our works, but our works show that we are saved. And it's so important for us to have that distinction clear. In fact, James, 
in the book that he wrote dealt with this very issue. And he said, this is James 2.18, but someone will say, he's setting up the argument, okay? We believe this, but someone's going to come along and say this, you have faith and I have works. Isn't it awesome that you have faith and I have works? I'm doing really good things and you have a faith in God. You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. And here's what James says, and I'll show you my faith. What's the word? By my works. So in the true Christian, someone who's genuinely saved, John Paul Hill says, faith and works are inseparable. Faith and works are inseparable. If you only have faith, not saved. If you only have faith and no works to back it up, not saved. If you only have works and you don't have faith, not saved. Faith and works are inseparable. And that simple message was available without barriers to any and all who would come. In fact, Paul would write this in Ephesians, and we, we just zipped past this verse so fast last week. But Ephesians 2, 13 and 14, listen to this. But now, now before we get into this, let me just say, there's a double entendre going on in this verse because it applies not only to the Jew-Gentile relationship in what Paul is writing, but it also applies to the sinner-savior relationship. Okay, so you have to hear it both ways. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, Gentile in the Jew-Gentile relationship or sinner in the God-sinner uh, relationship, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made, both, made us both one. Jew and Gentile, now one in the church. Sinner and Savior, one in the relationship of the body of Christ. He has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. The dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, the dividing wall between us and God has been torn down by the blood of Jesus Christ. And as all of this applies to us, the gospel is barrier-free. Whatever self-made obstacles you would put in the way of your salvation, Jesus Christ is already torn down by his blood. Whatever reason you might have to say, I can't accept Christ. My sin is so great. It's not the right time of life. Whatever barrier you would put up, your concerns about the church or whatever it might be, none of those can keep you from being saved. The Holy Spirit begins to work in your life to bring you to Him. Because the wall is gone any reason for you not to receive Christ is gone by the work of Christ. All right, here's a second. There's seven of these, so I got to keep moving. The gospel is also peace-giving. We started talking about peace right off the top, and of course, we talked about it in terms of being well-adjusted, happy, free of stress and worry, and very often, peace is actually defined um, in terms of what it's not. So a basic definition of peace would be the absence of strife, but it's so much better if we can get a definition that actually speaks of the positive benefit, not the negative result of peace, and um, in 
the scriptures in the Hebrew word and in the Greek word, it really is a sense of well-being. To be at peace is to have a sense, an overall holistic sense of well-being in our lives. That's why Jewish people to this day, when they greet one another, will say the word shalom. It's the word for peace in Hebrew, and it means I wish you well. I, I want things to go well for you in your life. And so we have this notion of peace. The gospel, one of the realities of the gospel is it's peace-giving. And Ephesians 2.14, which we just read, referred to Jesus himself as being our peace. He's our source of well-being. But that's something that's so elusive for us. That's why the opening question is so relevant, because we all feel the stress and the strife in our own lives. To be at peace with ourselves. So many people not at peace with themselves, inwardly in turmoil for all kinds of reasons. Or at peace with others, to be at peace with others. Relational conflict is so common. To be at peace with the world, with the circumstances that are swirling all around us that, that we have no control of. And of course, most important of all, to be at peace with God. Jesus wants to bring all of this to us. Now, because he's talking to a Gentile audience, which was different than other gospel presentations that had happened up until this point. So he's talking to a Gentile audience, and he says this in verse 36, for the word, as for the word that he sent to Israel. He's talking to non-Jews, and he says, as for the word that he sent to Israel, and he says that to acknowledge that this is where the gospel originated. God's plan from the beginning was to deliver the message and for the Messiah to come out of, the Savior to come out of this nation of Israel. That was why he called Abraham to come out of Ur and to, and to settle in the promised lands. That's why each of the patriarchs and, and, and David and Moses each received renewal of the covenant, God constantly reminding them that he was going to work through this special nation, his own people, to bring salvation to the world, and that it would be available to all. And that believers, having received this message, would be preaching, notice now, verse 36, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. And then he adds this parenthetical comment that's kind of an exclamation. He is Lord of all. All. Not Lord of Israel, not Lord of some, but he's Lord of all all. So again, this isn't an exclusive Jewish faith and message, but it's good news for everyone. It's inclusive of all. And I want to come back, if we could just kind of put a bookmark in this discussion of lordship, this little parentheses, we'll come back to that, but look at the fact that this is good news of peace. That's the gospel reality we're looking at. It's a gospel of peace. Now, I don't know about you, those of you who are believers, when you came to faith in Jesus, you know what the circumstances were that led up to that, but we tend to be somewhat pragmatic about receiving Christ as our Lord and Savior when we, when we actually come to faith in Him. We're pragmatic in the sense that we're looking for God to solve some problems that we have in our lives. 
There's some kind of crisis that we need God to address. And we have a little bit of, a, of, of an attitude of, God, what are you going to do for me now? God, there's turmoil in my life. God, I'm anxious over this situation. God, the circumstances are waging war against me. God, my world is upside down. God, we're under tremendous financial strain. God, this relationship is out of control. And we want God to solve our problems. Now, I know God can use those as catalysts to get us to the place where we hear the gospel, are willing to hear it, and therefore receive it. We look to God to rescue us from the immediate crisis. But while God may in fact rescue us once in a while from particular crises, from some of the desperate situations we find ourselves in, that is not the essence of what we're talking about when we are seeking the peace of God in our lives. In fact, Let's tell you a little bit of, a, of my own story. I uh, came to faith in Christ when I was in my mid-teens, 15 years old. Uh, my mom, who was in the first service, she uh, came to Christ around the same time, maybe a little bit before me. She was in her mid-30s at the time. And uh, we had gone through, like so many others, a series of crises that got us to the place, my mom and I both, where we were willing to get to a place where we could even hear the gospel, then we heard the gospel separately from one another and responded to it. For my own part, there was a series of circumstances that led up to that. In fact, we were living in Montreal at the time. We had not really been exposed to the gospel, not in any real way, didn't understand it really at all. In 1976, um, my grandmother died, and that was one of the key elements that kind of um, started the ball rolling toward a series of events. The very same year, this is going to seem funny to you, but the Parti Québécois was elected in Quebec, and that was a key element as an Anglo family living in Quebec. So we had my grandmother dying. We had the Pickists elected in Quebec City. And my parents decided that they would move us to Ontario. Now, Ontario people, I know that you think that your province is wonderful, but the one thing that all nine other provinces can agree on is that none of us ever want to move to Ontario. Many of us do, but all of us always consider ourselves to be from our original province. And there's a sense in which we're just here by, by, by accident and we're in exile here. There's, there's a bit of a sense of that. And certainly for me as a 13-year-old, that's what I was thinking. I didn't want to be here. None of my friends were here. My family wasn't here. So my grandmother died. The Pegasus were elected. We moved to Ontario. My dad started a business that failed. And all of a sudden, for the first time in, in our lives, we were poor. My aunt and uncle were in business with my dad, so it had failed. It affected two families. We lived next door to each other. We couldn't afford to buy groceries for two households, so we bought groceries for one household. And we would eat at each other's houses. And that went on for quite some time because we just didn't have the money to do anything other than that. We were under a pressure cooker. And in the midst of all of that, the whole thing gets splashed with alcohol because my dad at this point didn't know the Lord. And he was started drinking heavily. Now, all five of those circumstances led us to the place where my mom was pretty desperate and she remembered that maybe she could hear the gospel at a certain church. And so she went there and she found some care and some counsel. She came to Christ and I started attending and I went to a youth event and in the basement of that church one night, I trusted Christ as my savior and I knew I'd been saved. 
But here's the funny thing. My grandmother was still dead. The Parti Québécois was still in power in Quebec. The business had still failed. My dad was still drinking. and I still had to live in Ontario. <laughs> None of my circumstances changed. And yet, everything changed. Everything changed in the midst of it. See, the peace that we all desperately need is not peace with our spouse. It's not peace with our kids. It's not peace with our boss, our circumstances, or our world, or even with ourselves. It's not that you need to like yourself. It's not that you need to forgive yourself. It's that we need to be reconciled with God. It's that we need to have peace with God. And Peter was likely thinking as he's preaching this, he's probably thinking about Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. How beautiful is the person who delivers the news that brings peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns no matter the circumstances. So the peace we have from Jesus through salvation grants us freedom and Relief from our own sins, from the oppression and condemnation that we're under of death. But it does not necessarily relieve us of our current circumstances. And so to come back to that phrase that we bookmarked, to what Peter said about Jesus being Lord of all, if we, all, if we will only experience peace, in these other areas of our lives. It has to be with an acknowledgement that Jesus Christ is Lord. It'll only come if we surrender fully to His Lordship, His control, His sovereignty in our lives. And as I was working through this verse, I I remembered a line from Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, who said, Christ is either Lord of all, or he's not Lord at all. Christ is either Lord of all, or he's not Lord at all. And if he's not Lord at all, then peace will elude you. Here's a third. The gospel is Jesus-saturated. This seems to make sense, and we've talked so much of Jesus already, but this is Peter's most complete account of the life and ministry of Jesus. He says to Cornelius and his, and his crew that had gathered there, verse 37, you yourselves know what happened. Now listen, they weren't Christians, but Peter's appealing to them saying, you guys know what happened with Jesus? You know what was going down when he was here? You know what happened to him? In fact, uh, it was widely known what happened to Jesus in that time. Uh, first century uh, 
Jewish historian by the name of Josephus. No, so not a Christian. He's Jewish. He's a historian. That's his job. He published a book called The Antiquities of the Jews in 93, 94 AD, somewhere in there. And in his history, Josephus has an entry about John the Baptist it ha- and then has two entries about Jesus. And one of the entries about Jesus, this may be a little bit added to, but historians, uh, archaeologists, researchers generally agree this is the essence of what Josephus wrote. Here's what he said. About this time there lived Jesus, a magus, a magi or wise man, who performed surprising acts and became a leader of such people as delight in such tricks. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks claiming to be the Messiah. And after the accusation of the principal men among us, Pilate condemned him to a cross. But even then, his followers did not disperse. The tribe of Christians, so-called after him, endures even to this day. Josephus knew about Jesus. The general population knew about Jesus. And so Peter says to Cornelius, you know what happened to Jesus? And, And Cornelius would have been nodding. Yeah, I know what happened to Jesus. We all know what happened to Jesus. And so Peter then takes them through this little little synopsis of Jesus' life. And he mentions four key aspects of his life and ministry, starting first of all in verse 37 with his baptism and commissioning. Verse 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power at his baptism. That was his commissioning to go out and do his public ministry. Then secondly, his, his life and ministry, he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. God was with him. Verse 39, we're witnesses of all that he did. Then the third aspect of Jesus' life, they put him to death by hanging him on a tree there at the end of verse 39. Then his resurrection. Verse 40, but God raised him up on the third day and made him to appear, verse 41, not to all the people, to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses. Now, this is really important, this whole notion of of witnesses, which is mentioned several times in what Peter says, because unlike the Jews, Greeks and Romans didn't believe in a resurrection, like a lot of people today. So this line of reasoning with witnesses is critical as you address a Gentile audience who may not believe in a resurrection. It was so critical that there would be people who saw the resurrected Christ, because there's no gospel if there's no Savior who died, who was resurrected, who appeared, who lived, who ministered, who died, who was raised, all of it. The plan of God is dependent on God himself being incarnate in his son, Jesus Christ, and sacrificing his life on the cross, which again, according to Josephus, he did in fact do. He was a real guy, a historical figure who was born in Nazareth, who lived his life as a wise teacher, who impacted many, who people claimed did miracles. Josephus, um, he, he, he vindicates all of that. He records all of that. And also that he was crucified. The emphasis on witnesses who interacted normally with the resurrected Jesus underscores the fact that this was a visible, bodily resurrection that we're talking about. That it's not some like mystical, spiritualized resurrection. And so we're not just inspired to live a good life because Jesus was a good man who taught a good message and we're kind of living in the spirit of his, you know, he kind of lives in all of us in that 
kind of metaphorical, symbolic way. No, that's not it at all. We are made alive. We're not inspired to live a good life. We are made alive by the very real bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen? And there's no good news apart from it being Jesus-saturated. All right, here's the fourth reality of the gospel. It is mission-focused. This is not a gospel that merely saves without also giving the newly forgiven believer a mission in the world. In other words, it's not just that I come to faith in Christ and then I punch my ticket to heaven and then I can just go on and live my life as I wish. Uh, God actually gives us a mission in the world. And in Christ, what's of particular note is that our identity, our destiny, and our purpose are all fulfilled. They're defined and decided by God. So many people struggling with the big three, they struggle with identity and, 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 and with destiny and purpose. And the scriptures give us all of that. God gives us all of that. And so when it comes down to purpose, mission, verse 42, he commanded us, Peter says, to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God, notice, to be judge of the living and of the dead. We could have included this little section here, in fact, under what Peter said in the last point and just added a fifth, a fifth element to the aspects of Jesus' life because Jesus is actually returning in glory. And we await the coming of the Lord as judge. And the world needs to know He's coming. Because Romans 14, 12 tells us each of us Every person in this room, every person watching the live stream, every person watching on demand, every person in every other church, every person not in a church. Romans 14, 12, each of us, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Now, I was asking you a question right now. Are you ready for that right now? If this was the moment for you, if your next breath was your last breath and boom, you died right here in the room or right where you are right now, would you be ready to give an account of your life to Jesus right now? Some of us haven't even thought about it. And some of us don't want to think of it because we're embracing, even as Christians, so many people embracing a philosophy of the world there's so much of this, you know, you do you and I'll do me philosophy out there. Even among professing Christians, you do you and I'll do me. And because of that, because we get to dictate our own terms, there's a denial about this judgment that's coming. There's a denial about the standard of righteousness that God has set out for us in his word. It's as if we all believe that God at the end is just going to simply let us all in anyway and that there's no criteria whatsoever. Come on in, everyone. I was just kidding with the Bible stuff. Here's the fact. Speaking of the book of Revelation, chapter 19, one of my favorite passages. When Jesus comes back, he's coming back as a rider on a white horse. He's coming back as a rider on a white horse. And the text tells us 
that he's coming in righteousness to judge and make war. Now remember, we're going to get into the Christmas series next week. So it's going to be all cute. It's going to be all about a baby and a donkey, sheep, shepherds, angels. It's all pretty. The snow is falling and the lights are on. We just love the Christmas story. It's so warm. It's so inviting. It's so hope-filled. But by Revelation 19, listen, we've moved past the beauty. I'm not making fun of it. The beauty of the incarnation and the, the nativity scene. We've moved past that to a rider on a white horse. Baby's all grown up. Who in righteousness judges and makes war. And this moment when Jesus shows up like this will be, listen, when he, when he, any of your believer, you don't need to fear this moment. You should be like, this is awesome. We've been waiting all our lives for Jesus to come as the rider on the white horse. We're going to be shouting and celebrating when Jesus comes in this way. But if you don't know Jesus... It's going to be terrifying in a way that no human being has ever experienced. It's going to be too late. It's coming in judgment. He's coming to make war. Not one of us can stand before God and survive the judgment on the basis of our own goodness, if that hasn't been made clear already. We, we can't stand before God with our religiosity or our good works or our morality or our generosity. No amount of self-righteous effort will be enough to overcome the sin debt that is needed to tear down the dividing wall of hostility between us and God. We have no ability to remove even a single brick from the wall. Those of us who have believed in Jesus, though, will have him there, the wall torn down by his blood, and Jesus will be standing there with no need for us to say a word. Jesus will be our advocate. And we will pass into eternity because of what he did. His blood, his blood will be the difference. But if you don't believe, You'll be judged on the basis of your own sin. You'll have nothing to say. And you'll be cast out forever from the presence of God. That's not a popular message today. But it is the Word of God. And that's the mission. Tell everyone that news. Tell everyone the good news that they need to hear. All right, three more, very quickly. The gospel is also faith dependent. We've already seen that we are not saved by works. We've pounded that nail a few times now. Cornelius, for his part, if you look back to verse 2, which was a passage we looked at last week, he was a devout man who feared God. 
We've referred to all of this already. He gave alms. He prayed continually. Certainly that set him up to be open to hearing the gospel, but he still needed to hear the gospel and respond to it, or he too would have been unsaved, just a really, really good guy. Because he couldn't be saved by any amount of devoutness or almsgiving or prayer. He needed Jesus. Verse 43, Peter says, To him, all the prophets, speaking of Jesus, to him, all the prophets, the Old Testament, bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. The death of Christ is not simply applied to all sinners. One must believe in him. And that's what Cornelius and his family and friends did. Peter, in fact, in chapter 11, which is going to take us some time to get back to it, but speaking of this later, he goes to Jerusalem and he reports back to the church there of all that happened in Caesarea. And Peter would make it clear that God saved them. In chapter 11, he says, in verse 18, he says, God saved them because they repented. In chapter 15, verse 9 of the Jerusalem Council, he talks about this situation again, and he says that, that God cleansed their hearts by faith. So I can't emphasize enough that we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. And Paul lays it out for us, for anyone who would seek to believe in Jesus. Romans 10, 9 if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And that's it. Confess and believe. If you've not done it, do it. Call out to him in faith. Number six, see also that the gospel is spirit-enabled. What we see in verses 44 through 46 is often called the Gentile Pentecost because it mirrors what happened to the Jewish believers in Acts chapter 2. It was a unique one-time event to inaugurate the ministry to the Gentile world. The fact that it happened amazed the believers as we see in the text because verse 45 says, the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. God was moving according to his timetable. He was even interrupting. Peter was mid-sermon. When people started getting saved, God was moving. The Holy Spirit, we know, is, is the gift. Wait in Jerusalem, Jesus said. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a gift to us as we await the return of Christ, the consummation of God's history. The Spirit regenerates or saves us, applying the work of Jesus to our lives as we are spiritually baptized in Him. The Holy Spirit seals us in Christ. The Holy Spirit indwells us. The Holy Spirit um, fills us and empowers us. The Holy Spirit gifts us, leads us, comforts us. The Holy Spirit unites us as one in the body of Christ, the church. The Holy Spirit illuminates the scriptures for us to understand and apply these truths to our lives. And so we are not striving to live for Jesus apart from having Jesus in us through the Holy Spirit. God himself enabling our faith. The gospel is spiritual, spirit-enabled. And then finally, the gospel is baptism declared. 
Notice verse 46, the latter part there, Peter declared this, verse 47, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? And this, he was addressing in advance the objections that he knew he was going to get from what are called the circumcision, which is the Jewish Christians among them who are like tipping a little bit more toward this is just for Jews and you have to follow the law. So Peter says, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? Don't you see what just happened here? The Holy Spirit just fell and saved them. Who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. Remember Pentecost? It's happened again. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So baptism is the public, the post-conversion public declaration of our faith in Jesus Christ. And last Sunday here, we were able to witness three testimonies of three people who were baptized, who celebrated their salvation. And we heard some very moving stories of how God had saved. And there is an incompleteness to the gospel if we are able, but have not followed through on being baptized after having professed faith in Christ. Now again, listen. Baptism is an aspect of the gospel, but we are not saved by our baptism. It is a God-ordained means of telling others that we are saved by faith, but it does not save. And that too is a gospel reality. And if you've not obeyed Jesus in this, we'd be happy to pull the tank back up here next Sunday and fill it again for you. You just need to let us know. You need to be baptized as a testimony to your faith in Jesus Christ. All right, do you feel a little windswept? Seven gospel realities. We went through those really fast. You say, I, like, I missed part of it, I'm sure. That's great. It's all in video. You can go back and watch it this week and catch up whatever you missed in all of this. But if you don't yet know Jesus and you want peace in your life, you need to know and accept this gospel. You need to give your life to the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I thank you um, again for the incredible opportunity that it is for us to be here and to hear your word. And Father, I thank you for the way you worked in Cornelius' household. For all those that day who were saved and for the way you broke down barriers and launched a whole new aspect of the mission, a mission that we're still carrying out today. But God, I pray especially for any who are watching online or any who are in the room right now who have not yet surrendered their life to Jesus Christ. And I pray your Holy Spirit would be working here in the same way you worked at Cornelius' place. God, that you would save, forgive sins, and give life to those who are dead in their sins. Thank you, Father, for hearing this prayer, for being so kind to work among us in this way. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.